0: To cast. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. And now here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome everyone. Thanks for joining me today. Been a while since we've had a discovery episode and we really get into the stuff in this one. Season one, episode four, The Butcher's Knife cares not for the lamb's cry. Michael Burnham is an official member of the discovery crew, uniform and all. Tilly comes into their quarters and she's got a package. It includes the last will and testament of Captain Giorgio. She starts to open it and then and then realizes that, that, that she just she just can't do it. So she tucks it away. On her way to the bridge, she runs into Saru. Saru is wearing the position of first officer very well. He doesn't agree with Lorca bringing her onto the crew, but, but he's going to work to make the best of the decision. He very much still sees her as a threat though, and, and we see his threat ganglia. In this tutorial, we'll cover what nerve ganglia are, including where you can find them and what they do. Little mm, kind of hangy things that, that, that pop out of the back of his head w- whenever he senses a threat. She tries to assure him that, that that she's not a threat, but my ganglia remain unconvinced. Saru again is is gentle with Burnham, but but firm in his messaging. He he does not support Burnham being on board at all. If you make some assumptions here, though, this 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 really is perfect. First, he leverages his relationship with her to to, to just be brutally honest. I mean, he's not playing nice at all, but. But he's also not being mean. It's, it's actually a great example of telling someone that you don't have any respect for them, but, but in a very respectful manner. Second, and, and here's where the assumption comes in. While he doesn't want her here, he's going to work to make it all work out. I'm assuming that he and Lorca discussed this and that Saru expressed his concerns about it then. Lorca may have heard, and well, he might not have, but when Saru left that meeting, it was clear that Burnham was joining the crew. Even though he didn't agree, Saru supports the decision and is going to help make it a success. You know, I hope that something like this has happened to you before, because if it has, that means you have diversity of thought on your team and people are willing to express their disagreements. In the end, though, a leadership team has to be unified in their direction. So, you're in a meeting and the lead person has an idea, maybe a new mandate, or or, or something that needs to be enforced with staff. Thing is, though, you don't agree with it. Now, assuming that leader has created a safe space for people to express differing ideas, you do the team discusses it and at the end of the discussion the consensus is to do what the lead initially proposed let's say now you still don't like it but you're you're a member of a functional leadership team so once you leave that discussion you own that idea like it's yours you work hard to make it successful that's that's what a functional and successful leadership team looks like they reach the bridge and it is pandemonium red alert they're in a firefight with two klingon birds of prey things are looking pretty bad and just when it looks like they're about to be destroyed (laughs) the simulation ends we're all dead Lorca just lays into him very nice very polite he demands perfection from the crew and explains what a powerful weapon discovery will be because of its spore drive but he also points out they're going to be on their own they're going to get there first, but that means they're not going to have any backup. Landry tries to move things along, but Lorca, well, he gets one last dig in. We'll do better next time, sir. It will be hard to do worse. Hey, nothing more motivating than being told you're terrible, right? Well, Here's the thing, though. I mean, he's, he's not wrong. The tactical situations Discovery will find itself in are they are exactly how he described them. They'll jump right over the Klingon homeworld, for example, alone. I mean, yeah, backup might be on the way, but it could take hours, maybe even days for them to arrive. How often in the original series or even TNG did we hear, you know, we're the only ship in the area. Backup is days away. But really, do you, do you think there might be more effective ways to motivate the crew? Cause, cause I sure do. Point number one, this is neither a military ship nor a military crew. With the exception of Landry, we've been told this is a scientific vessel with a crew of scientists. I mean, think about it. Would Tilly be on a warship at this point in her career? Point being, you have to match your motivation to the situation and to the people. Maybe if he had a crew of military personnel that were trained and drilled for these scenarios, this would be an effective way to, to, to light a fire under them. But they're not. I imagine for some on the crew, they've never been in combat before. And these drills are great for progressing through that. But to be put in a situation you neither trained nor, nor even signed up for, and then to get mocked and berated for not doing well... <sighs> That's just poor leadership. So tell me, how how would you motivate this crew in this scenario? What techniques, what strategies would you use? Me? Well, well there isn't time to coddle them, and there's not really time to sit with each person and have a good conversation with empathy about your expectations. As we'll see shortly, they get called into action at the snap of someone's fingers. So me? I'd go into full coach mode. Herb Brooks coach mode. Who's Herb Brooks, you ask? Well, Herb Brooks coached the 1980 U.S. men's hockey team to victory against the very dominant Soviet team. It was the miracle on ice. He painted the picture for his team that, yeah, the Soviet team is great and likely would beat the U.S. team most any time. But not this time. He showed them that victory was possible. And it was possible because of the contributions of each member of the team. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. One game. If we played them 10 times, they might win nine, but not this game, not tonight. You can hear the whole speech in the 2004 film Miracle. It's, it's a great movie, I really recommend it. But what he does here is, the, is really the approach that I would take. Explain what success looks like, and then paint that picture for them. Set the expectation for success and what it looks like, and then motivate and inspire the team to reach and achieve that. I'd provide the tools much the same way Lorca does—drills, exercises, scenarios. But I, but but I'd give feedback in a constructive way. I mean, I think it's okay to drop the heavy stuff on them. We're all dead. But then tell, tell them how to do better. But telling them they're terrible and then walking away? That's what I'm looking for and I don't see professionals. I see amateurs. I see trash. Little pieces of trash on my stage. Yeah, that doesn't help anything. He storms off with Burnham. He discusses, once again, her strengths that she brings to the table. I'm happy to assist Lieutenant Stamets with refinement of the spore drives. This was a gorgeous scene of them walking down a dark corridor that lit up as they walked down it. Very much a contrast to the areas of discovery that we saw earlier. You know, full of people, bustling with activity. This part of the ship is, is just completely desolate. And we're about to see why. When the last episode ended, we saw that Lorca had kept the horror creature from the Glen in some cage surrounded by dangerous weapons. Lorca brings Burnham into that room. He shares that I study war. and that he hones his craft in this room. He takes her to the cage door and the creature launches itself towards them, but but, but hits the force field. So far, all Lorca's learned is that It's a natural aversion to light. Same as me. She questions why he would keep this on the ship. He says that it showed its use on the Glen. It's it's all but impervious. Then he orders her to study and weaponize it. Shifting gears, we're back on the Klingon sarcophagus ship. Things are not going well for them. The battle at the binary stars was six months ago and they're still crippled. They need a dilithium processing unit to start their engines back up and join the war effort. Instead, they're sitting dead in the water and they're almost out of food. In fact, turns out they ate the remains of Captain Giorgio. Hmm, How pleasant. Voke and Laurel are planning how to proceed. She encourages him to just raid the abandoned Shenzhou. It's got a dilithium processing unit. But Voke sees this as as, as sacrilege. This is the ship that's responsible for the death of Takuvma. Lorel makes compelling arguments that, well, eventually lead Voke to agree to scavenge the Federation vessel. Landry walks in on Burnham. Lorca's assigned her to team up with her to help solve the problem of this, this monster. How do you know it's a monster, Commander? Doubling down on it, Landry names it Ripper. Burnham explains it appears to be closely related to a tardigrade, which is a docile creature and it can withstand almost any environment. She continues to speculate about what it is and how it came to be on the Glen. But Landry is all about the mission, weaponizing this thing. But Burnham just doesn't see it. And she she says that its biology suggests it's not violent at all and would only attack in self-defense. Great line excellent line from burnham here you judge the creature by its appearance and by one single incident from its past so she was looking at landry when she said that but she was talking to me and you and just about anyone and everyone that can hear in a real way this is a precursor to the tos episode the devil in the dark which we talked about just a few episodes ago that episode took place sometime in 2267, and this episode takes place in November of 2256. So 11 years prior to Kirk's revelation with the Horda, Burnham is trying to convince Landry of the same. Put simply, when you seek to understand a thing instead of just reacting to what it, what it looks like, you, you can accomplish amazing things. The Devil in the Dark gave us a great example of that, and spoiler alert, this episode will too. Landria responds by laying down her version of reality. You see, when someone lacks the brain power to thoughtfully navigate their way through a subject or idea, they need it to be explained to them, preferably by a man. Uh, Let me explain. You see, mansplaining is not a negative thing. Lorca doesn't care about what the thing is. He's interested in what it can do and how it can give discovery an edge. And she says, if Lorca needs a thing, they're going to give him that thing. Period. In his ready room, Lorca is contacted by Admiral Cornwell. Critical dilithium mining colony, Corvan 2, is under attack by the Klingons. And, almost as if I saw this coming, the closest Federation ship is 84 hours away and the colony has less than six hours to survive. He assures the Admiral that they're ready to use the spore drive and that he has no doubt that they'll be ready. You have no doubts? None. There is no way in hell we'll be ready to jump that. I love Stamets. I mean, he just tells it how it is. He explains that while they grabbed a lot of gear from the Glen, they still have no idea how to use it. Discovery on its own just doesn't have the computing power to maintain a long jump safely. Look, I, I know I use a lot of drops from Dune, but please tell me this—tell this, me this is not the exact same way the Guild navigators came to be. Do not underestimate the power of Muad'Dib's prescience, milady. Computers can't calculate a safe jump path for ships and highliners, so they pump people full of drugs and gives them prescience so they can see the right path? Well, here, they need to find a way to basically do do the exact same thing. You know, well, hey, imitation is the purest form of flattery, right? You know, or, or at least something like that. Following his model for super great motivation, despite everything Stamets just explained, Lorca says they need to do it now. So, figure it out. Captain, this can't be rushed. Now you listen to me, Mr. Stamets. Back on the sarcophagus ship, Cole, the Klingon from House Core that belittled Volk in the prior episodes, beams aboard to swear his fealty to Volk and the tenants of Takuvma. He says that he wants the cloaking technology that this ship has. Volk explains the dire straits they're in, but but shows that he really is a man of his faith and is true to his beliefs. He says to Cole, What belongs to House Takuvma belongs to House Kor. Kor calls Takuvma his messiah and gives the rallying cry remain Klingon. Klingon. Stamets is ready to run a test of his new approach to the spore drive. They're headed to Corvan 2, weapons primed and shields up. Lorca calls for black alert and Burnham watches Ripper start to freak out. Lorca orders the jump. Go. And they emerge in the gravity well of a star. They're plunging to their destruction. This show is so, I mean, mm, it's so beautiful. This is unbelievably incredible shot of the ship just just plunging into the star. Stamets gets knocked out in the confusion, his face slammed against a console, and the crew successfully backs away from the star and warps away. <sighs> what a near miss. Landry and Burnham are discussing the behavior that Burnham saw from Ripper when they did the jump. You know, side note here, I think a lot of people have just said this creature is a tardigrade, but so far Burnham has just said that it has a lot in common with one. So me, I'm gonna call it by its proper name. Ripper. Why did he call him Ripper? You should have left when I told you. Oh. Anyway, Burnham says the use of the spore drive caused a measurable reaction in the creature's brain. But Landry couldn't possibly care less. She says that they're not gonna let Lorca down. Stamets is being treated by Dr. Hugh Culber. Lorca storms in. Stamets stands up to him, and Lorca calls him on it. Well then get off. Leave the ship. And then he shifts gears and asks if he wants to be remembered as a failed fungus expert. Or does he want to be remembered in the same sentence as The Wright brothers? Elon Musk? Is that from Cochrane? Stamets storms off back to engineering to get to work. And then Lorca makes a power play. He plays the latest distress call. Our bunker is collapsing. Mommy! Mommy! Wake up! Wake up! On a shipwide channel. You can physically see the guilt mount on Stamet's shoulders as he gets back to work. Also motivated, Landry grabs a massive rifle, releases a sedative into the cage, and releases Ripper. He attacks and lives up to his namesake, just ripping Landry apart. <laughs> Burnham puts the lights on to maximum, causing it to retreat into the darkness of its cage. She puts the force field back up and calls for an emergency transport to sickbay for her and Landry. Culber gives the nod that all TV doctors learn to indicate that the patient, the patient's dead. Lorca is furious. He tells Burnham to get back to it. We see the shell of the Shenzhou floating in space. Volk, in a sweet-looking spacesuit, scavenging around. He finds some personnel files, but most everything of value is gone. Lorel, though, has found the dilithium processor. She explains that some of it is fused together and they've got to be careful. Just one misstep and they'll die horribly. Undeterred, Voke gets right to it. Lorel explains that she operates best as the power behind the power. She helped Takuvma and is committed to helping Voke because Takuvma believed in him. They retrieve the unit and head back to their ship. I want to mark this moment because of the tactics used by L'Oreal here. So often when someone says leader, people envision a publicly visible person, the the manager or executive leading the meeting or addressing shareholders, the politician giving a speech, or a military leader rallying the troops. But leadership looks a lot of different ways. In the command code section coming up, we'll look at what Lorel accomplishes by being a leadership Influencer. Back on Discovery, Burnham has pulled Saru into the weapons lab. She apologizes to him for her behavior and they notice that his threat ganglia aren't responding to her anymore. During their discussion, Rippard gently roars and then she points out that Saru's threat ganglia didn't respond to that either. She feels this supports her theory that it only attacks out of self-defense and isn't an aggressive creature at all. Saru though is Furious with her. She manipulated him and apologized under a false pretense just just to test her theory. You have not changed an iota, Burnham. You will fit in perfectly with Captain Orca. She doesn't seem fazed by that at all, though. She gets some spores from Tilly, who's eager to help Burnham. She feels like that's her way of helping the people on Corvan 2. Burnham drops the force field. And releases the spores into the cage and as she guessed ripper doesn't attack in fact it devours the spores it was starving it's it's mere inches away from burnham and it's not attacking she and tilly put together some pictures and do an analysis on the engineering section of the glen her hypothesis is that ripper okay okay the tardigrade she she called it the tardigrade it can handle the calculations to navigate the mycelial network. She presents her findings to Stamets, and he agrees to test it out. So they beam it into the fungus garden and confirm there's a symbiotic relationship between them. So they're going to test the jump with Ripper as the navigator. Boke and Laurel return to their ship, and they find the crew feasting on food that Cole brought to them. You know, total, total side note, I paused the episode here to take some notes, and wow, I mean... The klingon makeup is so well done i know people have feelings about the look of the klingons in discovery but but regardless regardless of any of that man what a great job they did i mean even volks eyelashes look like they belong on an alien oh so well done well cole mocks volk and the loyalty of his crew he says says it just took some food for them to shift their loyalties after a tense threatening back and forth even even Lorel turns her back on Voke, and accepts Cole's food. He orders Voke's execution, but Lorel says she has a better idea. Leave him on the Shenjo that unholy ground, to die, slowly and alone. Quick cut to Discovery in its black alert. They beam Ripper into the Spore Reaction Cube. Presenting a supercomputer in an 8-inch cube. Which activates the tech from the Glen. It inserts itself into the Tardigrade. Stamets is blown away by the data readily available from Ripper. Lorca orders the jump, and they emerge right over the mining colony on Corvan 2. You see? Learning more about the tardigrade paid off. It's much more than just a monster or a weapon. Lorca flexes his military experience. He has the ship just sit there and take fire from the birds of prey. He has another jump prepped as the enemies close in. Saru and the bridge crew are freaking out and Lorca waits longer, longer, and then he orders the jump. They leave some depth charge kind of things that destroy the attacking birds of prey. The colony is saved and no one knows who or how they were saved. The spore drive remains a secret. Two self-satisfied smiles here. One from Lorca, he knows he just pulled something off that people will talk about for a really long time. And one from Stamets, well, kind of, kind of for the same reason. Burnham though, being the pragmatist that rains on everybody's parade, isn't celebrating. In fact, she sees the real damage they caused. Ripper's in pain. Serious, serious pain. She contemplates that as we join Voke alone on the Shenzhou, where he's been left to die. He's dejected. He's angry. He destroys the personnel records you found, specifically when it's displaying Michael Burnham. Slight spoiler, maybe. Just remember that little point. At his lowest moment, he's staring into the holographic eyes of Michael Burnham. As he watches Takuvma's ship, his ship, warp away, he knows his faith is being tested. He says, My faith tells me this is not the end. He repeats this as Laurel beams in behind him. He attacks her, but she's able to beg him off. She says that she only has a moment, but she has a plan that will unite the houses just as Takuvma preached. But, there's always a but, isn't there? It'll require great sacrifice from Volk. She tells him to go to the house of Mokai, and they will prepare him. He asks what he must sacrifice, and she says, everything. Burnham's tending to rip her. He's hurt. He's miserable. She offers him some spores. Brought you the good stuff. And apologizes to him. Back in her quarters, Tilly celebrates her success. Seems like you're gonna have another reputation to get used to. She encourages Michael to open Giorgio's will, and then she leaves the room. And Michael, Michael decides to open it. And we're greeted with a hologram of Giorgio delivering a message. I imagine you have your own command now, the captain of your own ship. Yeah, I suppose she didn't have a chance to uh, update that uh, during the Battle of the Binary Stars, huh? Well, she delivers a beautiful message to Burnham. And there are takeaways here for us, too. The best way to know yourself is to know others. And And keep your eyes and heart open. Always. And Take good care. But more importantly, take good care of those in your care. She leaves Michael with her telescope which has been in her family for centuries so that she can follow her cause, exploring and investigating. This is where Season 1 Discovery really gets its legs under it. We've established the Discovery crew and the ship. Burnham is finding her place, and the Klingon threat is taking on the more galactic feel it was meant to have. I feel like the prior episodes were all necessary build-up to get us to get us to here. So what do we have? Well, a wildly dysfunctional crew with an aggressive tyrant as the captain, a ship with the near supernatural ability to suddenly appear anywhere in the blink of an eye, Michael Burnham stepping into her role as a tortured prodigy that seeks to understand despite her reactionary approach in the opening episodes, and a Klingon threat that appears to now have centralized leadership and cloaking technology. I love it. Now I am I am really enjoying the character of Lorca. I mean on one hand, he's really just the arch villain that happens to be your superior officer, but he has these flashes of brilliance. In the last discovery episode we watched, I praised his ability to enroll Michael in his vision for the ship. In this episode, it's brief and it's totally couched in threat, but when he tries to get Stamets out of sickbay for just a for just a second, he actually tries to to build them up and inspire him. He compares him to the Wright brothers, Zefram Cochran and Elon Musk. Fun story on the Elon Musk mention. Apparently, uh, Jason Isaacs just dropped that in ad lib, hoping that Musk would give him a free Tesla. <laughs> Hope it turned out well for him. Now, of course, before he compared him to such greats, he told him to get off the ship. And, and, and afterwards, he played that horrific distress call from the colony to drive his point home. But, but, but still, he he had a moment. Unfortunately, this episode kind of suffered from one of my complaints about Discovery. If you weren't directly involved in Burnham's story, you really didn't get a lot of screen time. But that's what we can come to expect as the series continues. I mean, they do have some excellent character development later on, but it really takes some time to get there. And <laughs> they killed Landry? I mean, seriously? Seriously? I mean, she's an awful person and in my opinion, the perfect example of everything a Starfleet officer shouldn't be, but she's also, she's also kind of great. I don't know. I I was just super disappointed. She went so quickly we got to meet Admiral Cornwell, an incredible character in Star Trek. I am, mm, I am really excited to see more of what she offers as the series continues. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how things progress with Ripper. You know, when TNG first came out, they planned on having dolphins and whales as crew members. Turns out that, well, especially in 1987, that would have been prohibitively expensive, so they dropped the concept. But maybe having Ripper as the spore drive navigator will be their chance to do something like that. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Command codes verified. They say the absence of a thing can often be just as instructive as the thing itself. And we absolutely had examples of that with Lorca in this episode. He was aggressive, insulting, dictatorial, and well... (laughs) Just plain mean. Man, that's just mean. But the sad thing is, it worked. He berated his bridge crew, personally insulted Stamets, weaponized a distress call, and and they were still successful. But they were only successful in the short term. We're four episodes into Discovery and they just had their first big win. But was it Lorca's leadership or was it the skill of the team that brought them that victory? I mean, honestly, I would say the team succeeded in spite of Lorca's leadership. Burnham's assignment was to weaponize Ripper. That cost Landry her life. Ignoring the mandate, which, by the way, is a real pattern for her, Burnham learned more about the tardigrade and its capabilities. Then, she was able to convince Stamets that its capabilities were related to the spore drive and could possibly be their solution. Had all of that not happened, the ship would have failed and the mining colony would have been lost. The execution of his strategy at the colony was chaotic. It was dangerous. I mean, he'd been taking the time to drill the crew. You, you think he could have told them he planned on using the ship's defensive systems to lure the enemy ships into range so they could jump out and blast them out of the sky? Yeah, I, I think he could have. In fact, that would have all but eliminated the chaos and panic among the bridge crew. For all they knew, he was sacrificing the ship and them for, for, for something. It is absolutely a good thing to try new approaches. But if you keep your entire team in the dark about it, at best, you will limit the benefits and, and at worst, serious, serious damage could happen. I mean, imagine if Burnham was on the bridge. We know she doesn't really care that much about following orders. So, I mean, shields are down to 20% and the ship can handle two, maybe three more shots. She's going to warp out of there. Then they'd have lost the colony and the Klingons would know they've got some magic ship that can appear in the sky. Terrible, (laughs) just terrible stuff from Lorca here. Now, imagine that your job (laughs) is to support him and be sure his orders are carried out the way he wants them to be. Enter the executive officer, Saru. Here's the officer that wanted to run as soon as they found an unknown object at the binary stars. The one that says his species is specifically bred as prey. And he has to support Lorca? Whew, yikes. But he does. We talked about it earlier in this episode when when Lorca said that Burnham was joining the crew Even though he didn't like it, he's going to help make it happen. I wanted to talk about this in more detail and and more specific to your situations and and, and your experiences. See, when you put a group of humans together on a team and put one of them in charge, it creates some eh, interesting dynamics. We talk about the positive ones quite a bit, right? Diversity of thought and experience can bring fresh and innovative ideas. Having a group of people to run ideas by helps ensure we focus our time on the ideas that most benefit everyone and so on and so on. What we don't always talk about is the process, the path to those fresh and innovative ideas. I think the people that used to make those motivational posters, you know, the cat hanging in the tree saying, hang in there. Those people would want you to think that you just put a diverse group of people in a room and suddenly rainbows and lollipops are streaming through the air. Ideas are pitched, built upon, and implemented. It's all so magical. But it isn't. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it gets ugly. Not always, for sure. But I want to illustrate that spectrum between rainbows and lollipops all the way to Chairs getting thrown and tables being flipped and and everything in between. Ideally, you walk into a meeting to discuss implementing a new mandate or something like that. You share your ideas, others share theirs, and you all work together to filter through the thoughts and bring it all together into a plan of action that everyone contributed to and feels good about. And honestly, honestly, I believe that that can and does happen most of the time. But there are times when your ideas aren't welcome, when the boss or, or maybe even their boss or HR, and it's always, it's always HR by the way, has a my way or the highway approach to it and, and, and that's the end of it, right? Regardless of which end of the spectrum you experience in the meeting, there are two rules that simply cannot be broken if you want to be an effective leader. One, voice your opinion. Fight for it if you can. Be compelling and work to bring others to support your opinion. But do that behind closed doors. That's for the meeting. It's not for the floor. And it's not for all of the team. Which brings us to rule two. When you walk out of that meeting, whatever idea was the final decision, you own that as if it were your own. You don't complain to colleagues or to staff that it was a bad decision. You don't tell people that are upset about it that you don't agree with it. You own it. And then you go back to one. Behind closed doors, you voice your opinion. And maybe now, now you have real life examples of the negative impacts. And those examples can strengthen your case. But one always leads to two. And two can lead back to one. Remember that. Now that's not the end. If it's a truly bad decision and it's causing harm of some kind yeah you escalate it and i mean it when i say you fight for your opinion but but also also be reasonable about it just because you disagree with a thing doesn't mean it's an objectively bad decision quick story in the early 2000s we had to lay off some people it was it was awful We were in a union environment, and the rules process for all of this were clearly spelled out in the collective bargaining agreement. Now, I was new to managing an organized workforce, and I didn't understand how a CBA worked. When we got the news from HR, see, I told you, it's always HR. Toby now has the floor, and he is going to try not to screw this up like everything else in his life. That we had to do some layoffs. They identified the people that were impacted per collective bargaining. Well, I disagreed. One of those people was super talented. Like like we were lucky that they chose to join our team kind of talented, like next level. But because they lacked seniority, they had to go. I was, I was so naive. I put together reports, cost-benefit analysis. I, I wrote incredible talking points to make my case that we should keep this person and put one of our lowest performers in their place. Now, if you've worked in this environment before, you know what comes next. <laughs> I was shot down. And not because I had a bad idea, but because the rules for this were clear. Once I understood that, I not only owned the decision when all was said and done, but I was also one of the people that delivered the news to those affected. And at no point did I tell them that I disagreed with them being laid off. I was sympathetic. I listened. But I didn't try to make myself feel better. By telling the one person that I fought to keep them on board. Now, if it was a different situation, like a non-union environment, and I was given the list of people being affected, I could ask more questions, fight for my opinions. I could even escalate to HR if, you know, for example, my boss said they wanted to lay off a person because of a protected class or something like that. And, and, and sorry, I've, I've been I've been pretty unfair to HR for the last couple minutes. All of that to say that there is situationality to this for sure but generally speaking, rule one, voice your opinion behind closed doors. Rule two, own the decision as your own when the meeting is done. Now, can we talk about Laurel a little bit more? The power behind the power. What I appreciated in her was the demonstration that you don't need a title and you don't even need the spotlight to be a leader. She's supported both Takuvma and Volk in their holy visions. She provided counsel that's helped them both. But she's also in a position to advocate for her own ideas and others' ideas as well. Through her influence, she can shape policy, she can shape the direction they move, and she can shape their response. When you've developed expertise in an area and you have the respect of others, influencing others can, can almost seem natural. Your opinions are taken seriously and people tend to pay attention to what you have to say. But you can work to build your influence regardless of your expertise level, your experience, your position, or your title. It takes time, but it's possible. You must first build trust with and around your team. You do this through consistency and being reliable. Be an excellent listener and take action based on what you hear. And ultimately, develop relationships with the people you work with. The activity of doing these things will help to build your influence. Jason Demers wrote an article for Inc.com that focuses on this really well. Check out the link in the show notes to read it for yourself. And finally, Giorgio is amazing. Could you imagine working with or for someone like her? I mean, I would feel invincible knowing that she was supporting me. In a short message, she opens Burnham's heart so she can see who she really is. You are curious, an explorer. Then she points her in a direction to build success for herself. Take good care, but more importantly, take good care of those in your care. And then she forges a personal connection that goes beyond words. Know that I am as proud of you as if you were my own daughter. So good. it's such a shame that we got so little of her pound for pound minute for minute the greatest star trek captain to date unfortunately we only got her for a very short time rest in peace philippa Giorgio. you will be missed there is there is very little i enjoy more than hearing from you what takeaways did you have from this episode what did i miss we're on twitter at SFLA Podcast. And you can follow me, Jeff Aiken, at Jeff T. Aiken. Jeff T, as in Tardigrade, A K I N. And I'd like to ask a favor. If you have enjoyed the Starfleet Leadership Academy or learned anything from it at all, please tell a friend or a colleague about it. All right, now let's see what we're going to watch next time. Oh yeah! Season 5, episode 25 of Deep Space Nine, In the Cards. A super fun episode that not only brings baseball cards into the Star Trek canon, but also features Jeffrey Combs as Weyoun. This one hits a lot of high points for me, and I hope it'll do the same for you. Also excited to see what lessons we can pull from this episode. But until then, ex astra scientia... Electricast. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Electricast.